What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we have Stephen Mirioni. And Stephen's actually the editor of, well, he's been the editor of Traffic, of Birdman, and of course, right now, The Revenant. And that's what we're going to be discussing today, is the film The Revenant. Now, if you haven't been to AOTG in a bit, we just uploaded a couple days ago an article where we talked to the editors of the Star Wars film, Star Wars The Force Awakens. So if you're a fan of Star Wars, I would definitely check that out. Go to AOTG.com and look along the right side and you'll see BB-8 and just click on him and you'll be taken to the article. But in the meantime, here's my interview with Stephen Marione about The Revenant. So how did you get involved with the film The Revenant? Well, I mean, I've been uh, working with Alejandro uh, ever since 21 Grams. He came to me, uh, I can't remember, it was four or five years ago. This was uh, even before we did Birdman and had the script for The Revenant and was ready to go. And yeah, we were all kind of preparing and getting ready to do that when Leonardo had to put it on hold to do uh, Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street uh, because that came together. So everything got put on pause and he shifted gears. We did Birdman instead. And then once we were done with Birdman and you know, around the time of the release, everything got back on track to, to do The Revenant. I want to get into the story and the structuring of the film. Uh-huh. The the scene everyone talks about is the bear scene, but the one that really stuck out for me was the actual opening of the film with the attack sure. on the fur traders. And what's really fascinating to me is that it's the two moments juxtaposed, the, the moment where they're hunting and juxtaposed with the actual battle. And I'm wondering uh, how you approached uh, editing the scene to get the tone right, since both are so drastically different. You know, that was a sequence that came together fairly easily. You know, again, part of that is because we had the luxury of so much um, rehearsal time. So we were able to really have a good sense of how all that would fit together, even before starting to shoot with the actors, you know, by cutting together all the rehearsals and, and everything. So by the time uh, by the time we started really shooting it, we had a very clear sense of, you know, what the beats were. And, and that the thing that became tricky was the rhythm of the overall sequence. And mm-hmm. we actually removed a scene that was part of that sequence, again, just to get the rhythm correct, to not have anything feel redundant. And, and also because the frame of the movie, the, the dream sequence, the hallucination at the beginning of the movie, that didn't, you know, that wasn't really fully fleshed out until long after we finished cutting the rest of the movie. So, you know, they shot the pieces for that around the same time we shot the final sequence, the final scene in the movie. So once we had all that together, then it was a matter of taking it and really trying to, I don't know how to say it, create a rhythm that, that still had some, um, I, I would say there was a sense of urgency that, that got lost a little bit in the original cut. And so we had to be a little bit more surprising, a little bit more shocking than, than it originally was. But within that context, it's still, you know, obviously it's still played as a, as a very uh, long and elegant, immersive, you know, sequence. In Canada, we learn about fur trading through school. Right. It's very different than what they taught us in school, <laughs> uh, particularly right. that scene, because it's always presented as, you know, the natives brought us the fur and we said thank you and took it over. <laughs> and it was very right. simple. No, exactly. I mean, it, it really, I think one of the things that everybody on the production worked really hard was to 
portray that as realistically as possible and to show to really show that this was this was the first you know in terms of uh, american capitalism this was one of those first moments where you know before the gold rush where you had people from all over the world really working towards this goal of just taking resources mm-hmm. and it's not like the native people that were working with them they were working for barely anything but so were all the other trappers and settlers they were being taken advantage of yeah. uh, as well. And you can see what, you know, what miserable conditions those really were and, and how desperate it was. Well, and that's one of the things that comes across really well is how realistic and accurate, I guess you could say. Um, like in, in a bit of my research, I found that I guess they pulled the sign that's hanging around the Pawnee's neck after he's been hung. Yeah. Says we are all savages or something along those lines. Yes, yes. Um, which is actually pulled from... Uh, something that they found from a French fur trader having carved right. into a tree, which is just phenomenal, like that amount of detail. Right. Yeah. And that's something that, that Alejandro is always after with all the films I worked on with him. He, and he, you know, even the contemporary ones, I can remember one of the first times I went on one of his sets on 21 Grams looking in the uh, the bedroom of one of the characters, looking in the drawers, he had the uh, set dresser actually put objects in the drawers that the actors could look at to understand their backstories better. And, you know, it's just, he really creates a space for the actors Mm -hmm. so that there's nothing that's going to knock them out of the reality that we're trying to create that reality on the set. And, uh, and for me, that's just such a gift because, you know, I'm, I'm relying on painting essentially with all the performances and the the photography and, and, you know, what they're creating on the set. And it's, it's always at such a high level. It's really, uh, that's really a gift. Well, the, the other scene that really blew me away was the moment where I think I've got the names right. Fitzgerald and Bridger Uh decide to wait with glass and, it's this interesting sort of moment where it could lag, but it moves along and everything's really engaging because it's this sort of moment in the middle of the film where we're all supposed to sit and wait for Glass to die. Right. How did you approach cutting this moment with these three so that it didn't become a lagging moment but still engaged us? Are you talking about specifically when they're all still together waiting for him to die? Or are you talking about after they've buried him essentially and and left Uh, i was thinking about while they're waiting and then up to the burial uh so just before they leave that whole sequence was really tricky it was a really tricky one for us and it was a much you know in this as written it was a much longer scene and it it became yeah it just it became about really pulling it into focus and focusing in on Focusing in on, on, I would say, Fitzgerald's mm-hmm. point of view during that sequence to, to show him waiting and his frustration so that by the time he acts, you've really f- followed exactly, exactly his, his entire thought process. Yeah, but that sequence, the, the entire sequence of Glass trying to return to the fort, um, those took a lot of structural changes and just changes internally within the scenes to, to, try to, to try to really bring that into focus. And again, stretching it as far as you can stretch it till it breaks and then trying to then compress it again to make sure you also still got that sense that they were really in danger by staying there as long as they did. Well, when you say stretching it until it breaks, do you mean... Can you sort of explain what you mean? Like, do you mean pushing yeah, it sure. like, editorially? Like you, so, for example, there are a lot of 
threads going through that entire sequence. So you've got the Arikara, who are obviously after them. You've got the uh, rest of the trappers who've left to try to get back to the fort. You've got the two guys who are on the flatboat. Well, who becomes one guy um, because they catch them. But in other words, you've got one, two, three, four, five, about five different parallel groups of, of people moving at once and through that whole section. And, and we really, we really didn't find the perfect blend of that until we were in post. And so when I say stretching it, we always want to put in everything that was shot and draw the moments out to see what it is, to find the, the, the best moments and to find what we're really going to connect with. And then from there, you, when I say broken, it's like, it obviously gets to a point where it gets to be so many things and so many threads that you're not able to focus on anything and they start to feel redundant and then you stop caring. And so it became a matter of starting to pull pieces out and rearrange where things were happening. Again, in order to keep the focus where it needed to be so that the audience doesn't become either narratively lost or emotionally <laughs> lost during the sequence. It's funny that you say that because going into it, you know, you see the runtime at two hours and 30 sure. plus minutes. And yet I'm pulled through it the whole way. Like I'm engaged in this guy's struggle, essentially. Right. So you did a great job. Thank you. The other scene that, of course, I have to ask you about is the bear scene. But one of the things I've, I noticed is it felt almost documentary-like in the way it was shot and felt. Was there a, an approach to editing it that, to sort of heighten that feel, or it felt very raw? Yeah, that's one of those sequences that's not just, how can I say it, it's, it's not just everybody working separately, and then it all comes to me and we find a way to put it together. But, you know, that's a sequence where everybody, production, uh, the camera department, VFX, you know, the stunt, everybody including myself, we're all working together at the beginning of the process to make sure we know exactly what it is and exactly what the beats are. And really the main, the driving force of that was to have it feel like you're watching this documentary style uh, scene unfold in front of your eyes. To not do things like, for example, in that opening battle sequence, mm -hmm. one of the things we did was after it was all done, was to work really hard to have there be moments where it goes from objective to subjective, where we go from just watching the, this thing happen in front of us to suddenly experiencing it through Glass's point of view or, you know, and, and using the sound and using the music in a, in a subtle way to take the audience back and forth. In this sequence with the bear, we were pretty sure early on that we just wanted it we wanted it to feel like you're just there. You're there, you're watching it, your mouth is open, you can't believe what you're seeing, and you're feeling it in the most realistic way possible, but without going into some uh, either poetic or heroic, romantic. It was just laid there in front of us to experience it. And so part of that came from all of the research in terms of studying bears' real behavior, watching video of a, a real bear attack with a human, uh, with a man, uh, watching bears fighting with each other, just seeing what does a bear do to make sure that we weren't falling into any kind of movie stereotypes. And even 
in some of the early versions, <clears throat> I remember when sound first did a pass, it came back and, and there were these moments where the bear suddenly felt like a monster from Jurassic Park or something. Yeah. And we had to be really careful and say, no, no, we've got to pull that back. And and of course, you know, then they reshaped that to conform to what we were trying to do. You know, things like things like just the heavy breathing, knowing that at a certain point, the bear is just the bear doesn't have a, a moral outrage. It's just existing and it's just, you know, at some point he's just meat. And then other things like even there were certain moments, you know, because, again, this was so planned out in advance. As we started getting the final pieces put put in place, um, we realized that there was a moment where the bear was kind of in danger of feeling too ferocious. And so we were able to take and, and scale that back a little bit, again, just to really nail it, to really get it perfect. We were, we were all really super sensitive to that. So that's absolutely why you felt like you were watching a documentary is because that's exactly what we were trying to recreate. <laughs> uh, yeah, another example is, uh, for example, uh, Chivo, uh, our great cinematographer, mm -hmm. as we were starting to see certain moments, I remember him commenting, oh, there's too too many shots of the back of the bear, the bear's ass or whatever it was. And, and we were like, no, you, you know, yeah, that's your instinct is to not do that. But then once you see it in context, it's like, but no, it actually makes more sense. Like you, you're not going to be able to set the camera up for the perfect shot the entire way through. Through, even though we could have, if you did that again, it takes away some of the raw, real feel. Visceral, yeah, yeah. Did you guys work together to create a vocabulary for the editing room? Not specifically. I would say, you know, it's interesting. A lot of what I do is really a response to what happens, what they're able to capture on set. And so, if, for example, they're trying to emulate some other style of, of another movie, or or they're doing like chances are when I get that material, that's going to come through and I will interpret that in a way that makes sense with what they're doing. So it was very similar with this. The, the thing with this that was tricky editorially was it took actually quite a while for, I think, for Alejandro to even find the rhythm of the movie. Whereas, especially after coming off of Birdman, where we had to, we had to find that rhythm and we had to find, uh, you know, and be in a very close percentage uh, proximity of, of where the final movie was going to be, you know, kind of at the moment that that was being shot, this was a very different thing. And so because he had just gone through that, I think it put a lot more stress and pressure as they were going for him to realize, oh, you know, I don't have, I want to have some more flexibility. I need to have flexibility in terms of rhythm and pace and how I can change certain scenes to shift point of view or to, you know, sh just shift the urgency. And so luckily we had the resources. We had a, a really long production schedule that we were able to do a lot of experimentation and find that as we went. Well, the post process was quite long for this, but then you had a, uh, like during the shoot, well, not, sorry, the shoot process was not really. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I was going to say the, it, it was long when you consider that we were really in post within the first month or two of shooting, we were already turning scenes over for final VFX. We were already turning scenes over for sound to start working on within the first two months. Okay. So in that sense, yes, it was a very long process. But really, by the time we finished shooting around April, and, and again, when I say finished, we weren't really finished. We just ran out of, of good luck with the weather. By the time we finished that, we didn't have actually as much time as, as we would have wanted. We, you know, we, we were able to get first pass 
together by uh, June. Again, still having to have big, big VFX scenes uh, able to be turned over, um, which is tricky. I think people don't understand that it's very difficult to lock a scene in the middle of a movie if you don't know every scene that came before it and every scene that came after it, because every this, the smallest detail, you know, 10 minutes in can have a huge impact on something that happens an hour later. And any change, you really have to take a, a minute to step back and, and watch the entire movie to understand what those small changes, what the impacts that they're having, what the impact of those changes are. So in that sense, you know, we, we really only had uh, May, June and then into July, at which point he had kind of switched gears to prepping to shoot the final sequence of the movie, as well as a lot of the uh, material that would be used for the dream uh, hallucinations. And so, uh, and, and, and also that entire, uh, the river, uh, the entire river sequence that wasn't shot until then as well. So, so there was, you know, there was a significant amount of, of movie left to be shot. And then once that was done, that was done by about the end of August, we had to shift gears to really finaling, uh, the sound and the mix, we had to shift to the mix. And so I really only had a couple of weeks mm. to take everything that was shot, put it all together, put it, you know, incorporate it with the rest of the movie and land on a, on a final locked version of the movie so that we would be done in time for our release. When you said that, you know, you'd be sending off scenes locked. Yes. So how do you do that? Right. If, if, like you said, if you throw something off uh, at the beginning well, what, or change something. Right. I mean, one thing then this really comes just from experience is when you're working with something like this that has so many things that are VFX dependent, in other words, you're, you're, you're putting the, the building blocks in place, you have a really good sense of it, but you don't absolutely know the impact until VFX has done their work and you see it completely done. And the, the danger is when you're doing something like that is let's say you've got a scene that doesn't have any VFX in it at all. You've finished the cut. It looks great. It feels great. It feels actually exactly like it's going to feel when, when everything's completely finished, right? And then the next scene after that is a scene that's got a lot of missing elements that you're having to imagine as part of the scene, or you're having to imagine certain things being cleaned up or, or whatever, whatever the VFX elements are. If they're incomplete, that scene is not as emotional or visceral. You know, you, 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 again, you have to use your imagination, to determine whether it's good. And so the tendency is to not trust those scenes as much. And when you get to those scenes, you're thinking, oh, maybe that scene's not working. I don't know, you can just cut it out or just make it shorter. And you have to really discipline yourself to avoid making those kinds of big decisions until all the work is done and then evaluate it from a more equal, on, on, on equal footing with the scenes that actually are more complete. So inevitably, you end up with a movie like this having to cut it and keep it in a, in a fairly fat state for a very long time. And you have to really fight the urge to trim certain sequences down until you've got it all done and you can look at it all together. So yeah, so that's that's part of it. And part of that too is, you know, luckily having having just done Birdman with New Regency and Fox, they trusted us and they understood our process that some of these things we're going to spend money on to see through to the end and, you know, knowing that we may have to cut them in half or take them out completely. Um, you know, that's why these things 
a lot of times add up and and you know you 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 see that on other movies where they either didn't have time or they didn't have the money where they're making those decisions ahead of time and then they get locked into something and then there's a whole sequence that they've painted themselves into a corner they can't take it out they can't make it better and it just ends up in the movie and it's like a you know, like a weed sitting in the middle of the movie <laughs> yeah. that you can't remove. That's the scary. And that, that, that's what I would say. That's always the scary part with a, with, with a schedule like th- that we had is that you might not really get to see the movie all the way through until maybe a month before you're completely done. And will you be able to maneuver if something doesn't equal what your imagination thought it was going to be? That was my interview with Stephen. I'd like to thank Stephen for joining me. I'd like to thank, of course, Camilla and Rachel for helping set that up. And again, if you go to AOTG.com, you can check out our interview with the Star Wars editors. That's Mary Jo Markey and Marianne Brandon. And of course, if you have any questions, you can always email us, info at AOTG.com, or you can get us on Twitter, at AOTG Network. Or of course, join us on our Facebook group, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. I'm your host, Gordon Raquel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>